We'll be looking at several verses in Matthew 6. We want everybody to be able to look on with us in the Word of God. So these brothers have come forward. They have Bibles in hand as they make their way back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. And you won't have to fumble around to find the book of Matthew. It's marked at that passage, so you can turn right to it. Matthew chapter 6. Few things are more rightly despised than someone who claims to be one thing, and then when the situation suits him, he's willing to become something else. We have plenty of names for someone like that. We might say they're two-faced, they're fake, a chameleon, a hypocrite. We find this when non-religious people try to act pious when in church. And when religious people conform themselves to the culture when they're away from church. An example of a non-religious person trying to act religious occurred to me several years ago on one Lord's Day. When we had a man and his family who came one time and I think perhaps the only time, maybe one other time. But as I was talking to this man about our actually at that time building problem, we were meeting in a school, many of you were with us during those days, and letting him know that we were searching and had been searching for for many years, and he said, you know, you, you just have to pray about it, which of course is correct. And I really wouldn't have thought anything about it except his, his teen daughter who was standing next to him, you thought she would have, was going to fall over. And she looked at her dad with this look that says, I've never seen you pray in your life. What are you talking about? I found out later that, in fact, this family never prayed. So that's someone who brings a false piety into church. That's someone who is secular in his life but fakes being religious. He's one thing at home and at work and another if he shows up at church. And then there's the person who's regularly at church and knows and enjoys and even somewhat believes what he hears and says there, but when away from the church crowd, takes a sort of when in Rome, do as the Romans do approach, and is pretty much like everyone else, if not worse. At the beginning of chapter 6, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began to address those who appeared to live for the glory of God but in reality lived for their own praise. He then went on to tell us, all of us how we should give and pray and fast, doing so making God rather than ourselves the primary focus. So in verses 1 through 18 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addresses integrity in our religious lives. But God cares not only about our religious lives, he cares about both major spheres of our lives, both the sacred and the secular. In fact, we see that in Matthew chapter 6 because Jesus says in verses 4 and in verses 6 and in verse 18, your heavenly Father sees in secret. And so he cares, as we saw when we looked at those verses, about whether or not we are truly praising Him and bringing glory to Him in our religious activities of giving and praying and fasting. Your heavenly Father sees in secret. But then He also says in verse 32 of chapter 6, Your heavenly Father knows what you need, things like food and drink and clothing. And Jesus then condemns presenting a different face at work from the one you present at church and vice versa. 
One of the many memorable phrases from William Shakespeare is this, consistency, thou art a jewel. And the right word for this consistency that God cares about is integrity. The word integrity comes from a Latin adjective from which we get integer, meaning whole or complete. Integrity is the inner sense of wholeness that derives from qualities such as honesty and consistency of character. And so for the Christian, there is to be a consistency between what we are in the various spheres of life. There's to be an integrity between our private and religious lives and our public and secular lives. John Stott says this, In both areas, Jesus calls us to be different from the popular culture, different from the hypocrisy of the religious, and now different from the materialism of the irreligious. The Pharisees were largely in mind at the beginning of the chapter, but now it's the world, the Gentiles, whose value system he now bids us to renounce. In fact, Jesus places the two alternatives before us at every stage. There are two treasures on earth and in heaven. There are two bodily conditions, light and darkness. There are two masters, God and money. And there are two priorities, our bodies and God's kingdom. And he says we cannot sit on the fence. But how shall we make our choice? Worldly ambition holds a strong fascination for us. The spell of materialism is hard for us to break. So in the section of Matthew chapter 6 that we're going to begin today, in verses 19 to 34, Jesus helps us to choose well. In that passage, he points out the foolishness of the wrong way and the wisdom of the right way. And just as Jesus did regarding our religious giving and praying and fasting, so here he shows us the true versus the false. And he invites us to compare them and to see for ourselves which is better. Let's ask God to then help us as we do. Father, thank you for another opportunity to gather before you in this, yes, religious place, but people that you have called to not only engage in religious activity, but you have been called to be your light and your salt and your people in every sphere of life. And so, Lord, we desire to be people who are people of integrity, people who are what we are no matter where we are. And yet, Lord, we know our hearts call us away into the world. We know we should be devoted to you. We come to church, and yet we drift to the world. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need your wisdom. We thank you for what you have given in this famous sermon, and we ask you to make application of it to our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Each week, we have an outline for you that's inserted in your program. If you haven't brought that out yet, I encourage you to take a look at it. So we're going to look at some things that this passage tells us about the difference between Christians and the culture, Christians and the world. The first is this. Christians have different values. Christians have different values. Verse 19. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then in verse 20, he says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
Now, the first thing that we need to, to see is what Jesus is not forbidding when he says, do not store up treasures on, on earth. This is not a ban on having possessions. Scripture nowhere forbids owning private property. And in fact, the Bible's prohibitions against stealing actually assume private ownership. The truth is you can't steal from somebody unless they actually own something. Coerced collectivism is not taught in the Bible. And that, like everything the Bible teaches, ought to inform your views on policy. This is also not prohibiting planning or having things like insurance policies. In fact, the Bible commends the industry of the ant in the book of Proverbs. The Bible says this in Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways, and be wise. Now why? Why look to what the ant does? Because the ant stores food in the summer, food that it's going to need when the winter comes, and plans ahead for that. So when Jesus says, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth, he's not prohibiting having possessions. He's not prohibiting planning and things like insurance policies. And he's not prohibiting uh, for us to make provisions for our families. As a matter of fact, the Bible says very directly, if you fail to pursue making provision for your family, then you're acting like an unbeliever. First Timothy 5 says this, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The Bible tells us in several places that we are to enjoy the good things that God our Creator has given to us. Again, First Timothy, this time chapter 4, says, God created all things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And again, in First Timothy, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So what is Jesus saying? That's what he's not saying. He's not saying that you can't own private property. He's not saying that you should not make plans. He's not saying that you should not make plans to provide for your family. And he is not saying that you cannot use some of what's been entrusted to you for enjoyment. But you need to notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Do not store up, notice, for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, we're going to see in verse 20 in a little bit that he also says store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And there's a difference between the values underlying what we do for ourselves in both of those kinds of treasure. What Jesus is forbidding here is selfish accumulation of stuff. Materialism. Consumerism. And let me say Christmas. Right? Christmas as it is most often practiced now in our culture. He is forbidding the materialism and the consumerism that characterizes the holiday that we know as Christmas, unfortunately. What Jesus is forbidding is extravagant and luxurious living that fails to feel the pain of those who are underprivileged and dismisses their plight with a wave of the hand, look, get a job. When in fact, it's not so easy for many in the underclass that our country has produced to do that very thing. What Jesus is forbidding is the idea that the value of our lives is found in the value of our material possessions. Jesus said elsewhere, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. 
What Jesus is forbidding is the focus on matter. That's why we call it materialism, because it's a focus on matter, on physical stuff. He's forbidding in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 a focus on matter, materialism that attaches our hearts to the earth rather than to heaven. The Bible makes very clear that our focus in all things and at all times is to be upon eternal things. Colossians chapter 3 says this, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So to lay up treasure on earth is not then a statement against being wise in the use of the treasure God's entrusted to us. Rather, it's a condemnation of greed, of covetousness. It's a warning against being miserly with our possessions and having a consumerist mindset that's always thinking about more. I'll just pause here for a moment and ask each of us to consider how much energy, mental energy, physical energy, do you give every day and every week to your stuff and having more stuff and worrying about the stuff you don't have or might not have in the future. That's what Jesus is addressing here. And Jesus says, indeed, there are things we should pursue, but there are two different categories of those things. There are the treasures of earth and there are the treasures of heaven. And in your outline, I say this, Christians have different values And they value, first of all, what is lasting. Christians value what is lasting. The material treasure that we seek and expend our mental and physical energies for, Jesus reminds us that it does not last. Again, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy. Verse 20. Now, why does Jesus mention moths and and vermin? When we think of a a moth, or at least when I think of a moth, I think of a harmless insect that just sort of flutters around. At worst, a moth, to me, is just annoying but not harmful. But there's a particular type of moth that, in its caterpillar stage, does eat certain kinds of clothing, especially natural fabrics like wool, which clothes were often made of in biblical times, and even recently until synthetics were invented. So moth larvae would often eat their clothes. And since when Jesus walked the earth, it was an agrarian society, and most people lived off the land, they knew what it meant to have grain stored and then to have rats and mice eat the grain. Now, we know little about all of this in our day because we've invented very effective ways to protect against both. When we do have clothes that moths are interested in, mothballs will take care of them. And that's why we'll speak of a project. We'll say that project was mothballed. We mean it was just stored away until until later. We have insecticides and we have traps to keep pests away. But some translations of this verse do not say where moths and vermin destroy, but where moths and, perhaps you have one that says, and rust destroy. Now why? Why rust versus vermin? It's because the word that's translated vermin or rust is the Greek word that means eating. It refers to anything that eats away at. So any insect or animal that can eat your stuff would would fit. But also the decay process that corrupts a material over time also fits this word. So rust eats away at metal. 
Now, we've developed, just like we've developed ways of keeping rats and mice away, and just like we've uh, invented different kinds of fabrics and mothballs and all of that to protect our clothing, we've also developed better metal. <laughs> uh, I learned to drive in the, in the 70s. Uh, those of you that had a car in the 70s remember living uh, in Michigan where we salt our roads, what it was like to have rust holes in your car that you could put your entire body through. And in part, because of foreign competition, our car companies had to get it together and start making better stuff. And thankfully, they've made better stuff. And so we've developed better metal. And yet, with all our advances in protecting our clothes and our foods and our cars, the best we can do is make them last longer, but none of them last. And that's what Jesus is telling us. Jesus is reminding us here of what Job had wisely said centuries before. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. It will not last. And further, you and I will not take it with us. But treasure in heaven cannot be corrupted. And that's why Christians then have different values. And they value what is truly lasting. But I say secondly in your outline. Christians value not only what is lasting, but what is secure. Verse 19, again, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin or rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so even if you have better and longer lasting stuff, then people can steal your stuff. And in fact, it turns out then you've preserved your stuff for people who want it. What you've really done is made it more desirable for people who want it and people who might steal it. So even if you protect your stuff, you only make it more desirable for someone else. And as much as you try to secure it, your best efforts can be thwarted. Someone knows the code to your alarm system. Did you know that? You're like, really? Who? Well, the alarm company knows the code. The people who work there know the code to your alarm system. I trust they would never use it. I have an alarm system. I hope they won't use it. But somebody knows the code. And it's only is that alarm system only as good as the wires that tell the police that someone's in your house, wires that can be cut. And if you have wireless, the wireless device can be disabled. I sound like I've given a lot of thought to this. I'm really not planning to rob your house or, or anything. <laughs> and beyond all of that, though, thieves are, thieves are ingenious. They can always outsmart you. I mean, when you go to the gas station now, if you happen to go in and, and pay for your stuff, which almost none of us do now, we just put some plastic in a slot, and we don't actually interact with a human being. But there was a day when you interacted with a human being at the gas station. Someone actually came out and pumped your gas. And they were even polite sometimes. And they would do your windshield. I mean, those days are long gone here in America. It's all self-serve. We don't even have the self-serve signs anymore because that's all there is. They used to be full-serve and self-serve. I was in India a few years ago, and our missionary that I was visiting had to stop and get gas. And, there were, and I'm not kidding, there must have been 15 people working at this gas station. They were all dressed in uniforms, and they run, ran out to the car, and they washed all of the windows, and they pumped the gas. And I was nostalgic for, for, for those days. 
But if you go to a gas station, if you happen to go inside the gas station to, to pay for something or to pay for your gas, you will find the person there barricaded behind six inches of bulletproof glass. And then they will have all kinds of stuff, and all you can really see is their eyes and their mouth. And then you put stuff in a slot and you, and you leave. Now that's all designed to protect this person from would-be thieves. And it does its job as far as it goes, except, as I said, thieves are ingenious. And I read the story of one thief who poured gasoline around the gas station, took a gas can and just poured gasoline around the gas station, and then went inside with a lighter and said, give me all the money, or I'll blow the pl- set the place on fire. So for all of the bulletproof glass and all of the ways to secure what we have, there are always those who find ways to get around it. But treasures in heaven, unlike treasures on earth, are secure. You can take that treasure with you because nothing can destroy it and no one can take it. We're going to see what that heavenly treasure is in a bit. But Christians value what's lasting and Christians value what's secure. And then I say thirdly in your outline, Christian values produce Christian actions. So we value these things. We value what's lasting and we value what's secure. And then these values, these Christian values, result in Christians taking according action. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I pointed out earlier that in verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then in verse 20, he says, Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And I pointed out that that for yourselves refers to being selfish, focused on self. But it's used in verses 19 and 20 of both kinds of treasure, earthly and heavenly. So here's the idea, friends. Both of these things, both that we invest in, are indeed investments that give a return to us. Whether you store up earthly treasure or you store up heavenly treasure, in both cases you're making an investment and in both cases you're getting some type of return, getting something out of it. But where we look for our reward, Jesus says in verse 21, says something about our hearts. The problem is not looking for reward. The problem is where you look for that reward. Is it in the treasures of earth? Is it in your stuff? Do you look for reward in the same stuff that the world looks to for reward? Or is it in the things that matter to God? Investment in, as we will see, mission and ministry. The Bible does describe what John Piper calls Christian hedonism. You all know what hedonism is. A hedonist is someone who lives for pleasure. And so this idea of Christian hedonism may sound like an oxymoron, but in fact, I'm convinced that John Piper is right, that Christians do indeed are bidden by God to pursue pleasure, but not the pleasures of earth. Rather, we find joy in investing our resources, our time and our talent and our treasure in others and in their need of Christ and in their need and our need of growth in Him. So what is heavenly treasure? Heavenly treasure is this. Anything that will be of value in heaven. Heavenly treasure is anything that will be 
of value in heaven. So now think about the stuff we value. Our houses. Will that be of value in heaven? Your car? Your body? You think about all of the money and all of the time and all of the energy and all of the worry that we put in things that will not be of value in heaven. All matter, all material will be destroyed. This earth will be rebuilt, incorruptible. There will be a a new earth. But friends, what does have value and will have value in heaven? It's not your house, it's not your car, it's not your career, it's not your body. What does? Godliness now has value in heaven then. Mission now has value in heaven then. Investment in ministry now has value in heaven then. Service to others now has value in heaven then. Things like godliness and mission and investment in ministry and service to others, those are treasures of heaven. Because they're of value in heaven both now and in the future. And so I ask you the question, so what's your pleasure, Christian hedonist? What pleases you? What should please you and me? May I suggest, no, may I say Jesus requires that we live a legacy, that we live a life right now that will leave a legacy that will outlast our lives. And not only outlast our lives just for the next generation or the generation after that, but will have eternal value. It will matter in heaven and into eternity. And let me suggest to you as well, friends, that you not only order your life and your resources in a way that you live a legacy, but that you seek to leave a legacy. That means things like, after I'm gone, thinking about how the things that God has allowed me to accumulate over the years on earth will be able to continue to benefit the things that really matter in heaven, things like mission and ministry and church planting and service to others. A few years ago at our servants' retreat, I mentioned something that we want to do in the future. And I do that a lot. If you've been with us for a while, you know that. I will say, here's something we're going to do, Lord willing, down the road. And I just leave it at that at that point. I explain what it is. And then I just plant the seed. And I hope it will germinate in the minds of some people. And then finally, Lord willing, the time comes when we're able to start to actually do some of those things. And one of the things I said at our servants' seminar a few years ago was that we need to start a program, a legacy fund We could call it a lot of different things. But the idea is for us as a church to remind ourselves, remind each other that we need to consider not only planning for our immediate future, not only planning for the future of our families, but planning for the future of ministry. And considering leaving, yes, a financial legacy for the furtherance of God's work even after we are done. There are lots of ways to do that which undoubtedly many of us have never considered. And so this coming year, in 2015, I'm going to ask our finance team to help us with ways that we can do that. Now, don't be afraid. We're not going to come after you. We're not going to try to steal your stuff. We're not going to be talking about money all the time. 
If you've been here for any length of time, you know that we don't talk about money except when the Bible talks about money. And we're going to see in a bit, it happens, the Bible talks about money like a lot. I mean, it does. But I don't just talk about money. And in fact, people who really have a grip on their money, if you ever talk about it, they think you talk about it a lot. So Christians have different values. Secondly, in your outline, Christians have a different perspective. Christians have different values and they have a different perspective. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, it appears at first, as you read this, that Jesus has changed subjects and he's moved on from talking about our view of what's valuable to talking about that that which we view, what we look at, what we take in. So I've heard messages from this passage on, for example, not watching bad movies. Now, I'm all in favor of not feasting our eyes on bad things, and the Bible teaches that. But this passage is actually related to what we've just seen and to what follows, and it's related in this way. One commentator, I think, put it well. The eye here is pictured as the window through which light comes into the body. If a window is clean and the glass is clear, the light that comes in will properly light every part of the room. If the window is dirty or if the glass is uneven or tinted or discolored, the light will be hindered and the room will not receive the full benefit of the light. The amount and quality of the light that comes into the room depends on the condition of the window through which it comes. So it is with the eye. The condition of the eye determines the quality of the light that enters the body. If you're colorblind, all the reds and greens of Christmas decorations are lost to you. If you have cataracts, you may sit next to someone and perceive only a shadow. If your eye is blind, how great is that darkness? There are no colors, no forms, no motion. So Jesus is saying that the light that comes into a man's soul depends on the spiritual condition of the eye through which it has to pass because the eye is the window of the body. So the question then is this. Do we have spiritual eyes through which we see all things, including material things, the stuff of life? And in the way this is translated, it says healthy and unhealthy. But you have a footnote in the NIV for verses 22 and 23 that says healthy actually is a word for generous and unhealthy is a word for stingy. So you could actually read those verses now, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. From a Christian perspective then, from the way Christians see things, see because we have clear and clean eyes, sanctified eyes. Now we see the stuff of life a, a different way. We have a different perspective. And so from a Christian viewpoint, from a Christian perspective, from the way Christians see things, I say in your outline, we view money as expendable. We view money as expendable. Now why money? Well, because in verse 24, the last verse of our passage today, Jesus is going to say, you cannot serve two masters. And he mentions who those two masters are, God and money. 
And in verses 19 through 21, he has talked about treasures. And so here he's talking about how you see stuff. And Christians see stuff differently. And we see stuff differently because to us, money is expendable. Money is the primary means, hear this, by which we carry out our desires. Money is the primary means by which we carry out our desires. So, one Christian financial consultant has said, if you show me your checkbook, you've shown me your heart. Because you've shown me what matters to you. And the Bible speaks on money often. In fact, Jesus spoke more often about money than about heaven and hell. Now, why? Because the Bible is about love. The Bible is about whether or not we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul. Or will we love ourselves? And the answer to that, will I love God or will I love myself, is a matter of idolatry. Godliness or idolatry. Will I love God or will I love an idol and will I use what I have in order to pursue my idols? That's why Colossians chapter 3 says this, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature and then includes greed, which is idolatry. So the Bible is about what we value, what we love, what we want. And we've got to ask ourselves, what do I really want? Do I really love God or do I really love me and love my stuff that money can buy? But from a Christian perspective, from a a clean eye, from a clear eye, from an untinted eye, money's expendable. It's just money. So Christians view money as expendable. And then I say Christian views produce Christian vitality. Christian vitality. That is Christian life. Vitality. What is vital is alive. And Jesus says if your eyes are generous, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If you see clearly, friends, if you see from a a heavenly perspective rather than from an earthly perspective, if you see all people and all things and all circumstances that way, that will affect every aspect of your life, then you can live life to the full. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and they might have that life more, do you all remember? More abundantly. And we read that and we think, cool, abundantly means more stuff. And Jesus says, it's not more stuff, it's seeing the stuff clearly. And then having seen the stuff clearly, ordering our lives around what truly matters and what should truly give us pleasure. Christians have different values. Christians have a different perspective. And then lastly, Christians have a different master. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. Or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Clearly, friends, right? This is mutually exclusive. But we try. Man, will we try. See, this is an either or. It's either God or it's money. That's what Jesus says. It's an either or, but here's what we try. There's got to be a both and in there somehow. Somehow I can be devoted both to God and be devoted also to money. And Jesus says, no, you can't. You can't be devoted to me and anything else. It is me and everything else is subordinate to it. 
including the vehicle through which we carry out pursuing our desires. But we want to find a both and rather than an either or. Can't I both give to God and satisfy my own selfishness? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Follow the guys on TV, the prosperity gospel guys. That's precisely what they have done. You know that, don't you? They've said, you know, Jesus said this, but the truth is you can have have both. Here's how. You give to God and you'll get more stuff. What a lie. From the pit of hell. To say that you give to God in order to get stuff. Jesus says you don't serve God and money. You serve God and that has pleasures of its own. If God then seeks to bless you materially beyond that in order for you to invest further in heavenly treasure, praise God. But God makes no such guarantee and it would violate directly what Jesus has taught here in the Sermon on the Mount. I had the pleasure this past week of meeting with a young man who graduated from seminary and uh, is pursuing ministry. And he uh, somehow got entangled with a liberal denomination that had a liberal church in the Downriver area. By liberal, I mean they don't preach the gospel. But he had been told by the leaders of this denomination, this, this church is dying and it needs the truth. It needs the Bible. It needs the gospel. And we want to have you come in and do that. And he was intrigued by that. He wanted to do that. He wanted to revitalize that church. And he went in with great ambition and with uh, great motivation. And yet after two years, he found that the people in that church didn't want the gospel. The church had grown down over the years to 40 people. And over his two years, all but eight of those people left. Now, thankfully, 30 different people have come who do want that truth. But it turns out that church and the denomination that runs that church do not want it. Now, I tell you that story for this reason. This young man told me, that he's leaving that church and those 30 new people are leaving with him and he's going to start a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church in the Wyandotte area, praise God. And he was asking, how do I do that? And so we're going to be talking over the months uh, ahead together. But he told me this, he said, you know, this denomination has a ton of money. And they offered this young man a half million dollars to plant a new church under their auspices. Now, not a half million for him, a half million dollars of support for a new church. Now, friends, we planted a church 13 years ago, this church. And I thought to myself, what if someone said, I will give you a half million dollars to do this? I would like to think that I would have the integrity that this young man has, who said, no, truth is more important than money. He's laying up treasure in heaven. And friends, we don't know what a grip our stuff has on us until we're willing to let it go. And I'm encouraging you to think about letting it go. I'm not asking you to let it go to me. I'm not even asking you to let it go to this church. I'm saying, for your soul's sake, you cannot serve God in money. Be willing to let it go. True financial planning is about how for you to make more for God. And even when we use what we have for ourselves, it's so that we can serve God and further promote what matters to God. 
Some of you in our congregation are financial planners. I encourage you financial planners to not just tell people how they can plan to have more for themselves, but how they can plan in order to invest more in the things that God says are valuable. And so I say in your take-home truth, Christian devotion promotes or produces Christian living and vitality, well-being. Christian devotion, being devoted to the things that matter to God. All right, we're going to pray in just a moment. Let's ask God to help us to implement these things. And then we're going to have some folks who are coming forward to join our church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word and to be convicted by the grand truth that the Lord Jesus Christ presents to us. That there are really only two masters. There is you and there's everything else. And the everything else we pursue is represented by the money that is the currency, that is the means by which we pursue our heart's desires. Oh, Lord, you alone are worthy to be our heart's desire. So help us to invest all that we are and all that we have in heavenly treasure, those things that will last in heaven. Help us to make those adjustments even this week so that we might please you and that we might lay up treasures in heaven for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.